Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. I, um, I ask that we, uh, we not do the normal uh, reading of the Scripture beforehand today because we've got such a long passage. I'm going to read it section by section as we work through it. Um, and we're going to learn a lot today. That's, that's, my, that's been my prayer and my hope is that you're going to walk away from here this morning understanding a little bit better uh, what's going on in the, in the last days? What are the last days? Um, this section of Scripture that we're going to dig into in Matthew 24, uh, which you can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles there, Matthew 24, um, this section that we're digging into is probably the most significant section of Scripture discussing the last days outside of the book of Revelation. So, um, we're going to cover a good bit of it, and, uh, and as I said, learn a lot. If you uh, forgot your Bible um, this morning or don't have a Bible, we do have some Bibles um, in the foyer out there. If you want to grab one, um, that would be our gift to you. You can take that home. Um, but before we dig into this, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to be our teacher this morning. Lord Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By you all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through you and for you. And you're before all things, and in you all things hold together. In these last days, you will hold all things together. And Lord, we remember today that things in this world are not falling apart. They're falling into place. And what you have decreed would happen will happen. What you have said, Lord, what you have prophesied will take place. The heavens and the earth will pass away, but your word will endure forever. Your words are like solid rock for our feet that we stand upon. And so, Lord, we want to uh, learn today, so teach us. Holy Spirit, we invite you here to move among us, to, to sharpen us, Lord, that we might be able to love you not only with our whole hearts, but with our whole minds. So instruct our, our minds today. Give us an intelligent understanding of these last days. And a peace that comes from understanding your sovereignty over them all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've been working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Gospel of Matthew for um, a little while now, a year and a half or more. Um, and we have made our way to Matthew 24, and as we've made our way through this gospel, 
what we've seen is that the, um, the animosity toward Jesus has been steadily increasing, coming from the Jewish leaders. And in these last few chapters that we've covered, um, the tensions between Jesus and these religious leaders has risen to a fever pitch. And it all really began on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, before, before he is raised from the dead, when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Today's Palm Sunday. That's where all this began back uh, a few chapters ago in chapter 21. Using the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we piece together a timeline of what we call Holy Week. That's the, the last days, the week leading up to Christ's crucifixion on Friday, his burial, and then his resurrection on Sunday. And so here's sort of the, the overview of that timeline. On Monday, uh, you, you might remember, or on, I'm sorry, on Sunday, you might remember Jesus rides in uh, to Jerusalem on the donkey. It's called the triumphal entry. He, he goes and visits the temple, and then that evening he, leads and he leaves and goes and he lodges in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. On Monday, he makes his way back into the city. On his way back into the city, he curses a fig tree. And if you remember from that uh, sermon, that cursing of the fig tree was a sign miracle pointing to the judgment that was coming to Jerusalem. He then goes in and he cleanses the temple. He drives out the merchants and the money changers and he takes up residence in the temple and he heals some people and he teaches there in the temple. Then that evening he returns to Bethany with his disciples again and lodges there. Tuesday, um, Tuesday, Matthew actually covers Tuesday. He uses four and a half chapters of his gospel to talk about the events of Tuesday. And so we've been in Tuesday for a while now, um, and we're not going to finish today. Um, Tuesday, Jesus comes back into Jerusalem, and this is when he begins very directly exposing and attacking the Pharisees. So you might remember the parables that he taught against them. That were, there was three parables right in a row. I believe Eric taught on those. Um, and he talks about how the kingdom will be taken away from them and given to those who are bearing its fruit. And then after that, you might remember the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they try to trap Jesus in his words, and they fail to do so. Um, and then after that, we have the seven woes, where Jesus really uh, lays it on the religious leaders in those seven woes. And then that all happens in the temple. And before he leaves the temple, for the last time, Jesus speaks these gut-wrenching words of judgment over Jerusalem and over the temple in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 38. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
And then as Tuesday evening approaches, Jesus leaves with his disciples. He heads east out of the city toward Bethany once again. That's where Lucius picked up um, last week, did a phenomenal job preaching on these first 14 verses in, in Matthew 24. And Jesus stops on the Mount of Olives. He looks back over the city of Jerusalem. And the disciples point out this mass, the massive structure of the temple. Remember Lucius said that some of the stones in this temple were the size of this room. Massive structure. And then Jesus prophesies, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that throws the disciples for a loop. That shakes them up a little bit. You can see their concern in Matthew 24, 3, when they ask, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, this is so interesting. Think about their paradigm as they ask this question. The disciples do not yet realize, their, their minds are still blind to the fact that Jesus is going to die and then rise and then ascend into heaven and that there's going to be a, a period of history where he is ruling from heaven and his church is here on earth with his spirit before he returns. So when they ask this question, they're not thinking the same way that we think now knowing more than what they knew. So when they say, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age for them, the end of the age means the end of this oppressive rule over Israel. This age where, where Israel is always being ruled by another. When will that end? When will you come means when will you set up your kingdom visibly here in Jerusalem and rule. That's what they're thinking is about to happen. And then they're wondering, how in the world does the destruction of the holy city play into all of this? And so those questions launched launch Jesus into what's known as the Olivet Discourse, which is what Matthew 24 and 25 are about. And again, Lucius covered the first 14 verses of this last week. Um, in the ESV Bible, that's got a, a heading over it, the signs of the end of the age, right? And, and those 14 verses are talking about, most scholars would say, those 14 verses are talking about sort of a summary of the, the whole of the, of the final days, the last days, what, what that's going to be like and what it will take to persevere to the end in the last days. Now, a question that you might have is, when are the last days going to start? Well, they've already started. The last days began when Jesus ascended into heaven. And the last days cover the time from which Jesus ascends to the time that he returns. We are in the last days. What we don't know is exactly where in those last days we are, but we know we're closer to the end than we ever have been, right? Um, we know that these are the last days. The writers of the New Testament refer to these as the last days multiple times. And on the day of Pentecost, you might remember the Holy Spirit falls upon the church and Peter goes out and he preaches this sermon in the streets, 
and he quotes Joel 2, and in, and in Joel 2, it says, in the last days, my spirit will be poured out on all flesh. The last days began with Christ's ascension. So, we learned last week that in these last days, while we await Christ's return, we can expect false Christs and false prophets uh, to rise up. We can expect wars and political upheaval, natural disasters, and in general, worldwide suffering in various places and to various degrees. But it's only the beginning of the birth pains. And these things must take place, and we were exhorted not to be alarmed, to see to it that we are not alarmed, that we don't get frightful because of what's happening around us or in the world. That Christ is in control and we can trust Him. And He will accomplish what was long ago promised to Abraham that through one of His descendants, namely Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that that blessing comes in the fact that every nation will have the opportunity to hear the gospel and turn to Jesus in faith, turning from their sins and believe in Him and be saved. And this will happen because Jesus has said it would happen. And so we pick up in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 15. And let's read um, verses 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 15 through 22 to start us out here. Again, Jesus is turning his attention um, back to the disciples' question that they first asked, when will Jerusalem be destroyed? He says this, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And that brings me to my first point. And that is that this first prophecy was fulfilled in A.D. 70. Um, Jesus references the abomination of desolation. And that's a phrase that most any uh, Jewish person would have recognized in the first century. It referred to some very famous prophecies made by the prophet Daniel. In his, in his book, the book of Daniel, he made, he made four different prophecies that mentioned this. And you can look those up on your own, but it's Daniel 8.13, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11. So hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene, Daniel prophesies that there's going to be a, a foreign ruler who's, who's going to come in and um, 
and set himself up in the temple and profane it. And most Jews thought that this had already happened because uh, in, in 186 BC, there was a foreign king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who comes into the temple and he erects a pagan altar to Zeus and he declares that pigs and other unclean animals be sacrificed to this, to this altar. But Jesus makes it clear that this abomination of desolation was still to come, that it hadn't happened yet. And in fact, 40 years after Jesus makes this prophecy, Roman armies lay siege to Jerusalem. They cut off uh, food supplies, and eventually they destroy the city of Jerusalem, including the temple, stone by stone. It is totally laid waste. And after destroying the temple, the Roman army makes sacrifices to false gods, declaring Titus to be supreme. And the first century historian uh, Josephus tells us of slaughter, of disease, of pestilence, of famine that all takes place in Jerusalem at this time. It was apparently so horrific that parents resorted to cannibalism of their children. Millions died. Many, many Jews were taken into slavery. And the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in AD 70 was indeed, just as Jesus predicted, it was a great tribulation like never before. And Jesus says it will never be that bad again. But here's the cool thing. There's an ancient historian, Eusebius, who records that many Christians fled to the mountains because of this prophecy that Jesus gave. They fled in A.D. 67 while they were under siege during the Jewish revolt. They fled to the mountains of Pella. And many Christians were saved because they heeded the words of Jesus. This prophecy saved many lives, the lives of those who believed him and listened and paid attention to his words. And this is one reason for prophecy. It's one reason is that if, if we pay attention to it, it can prove very, very helpful at certain points in history. So, the first prophecy that Jesus makes here in verses 15 through, through 22, um, I believe they have been fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, remember Jesus, when he left the temple, he said, see, your house is left to you desolate. Um, and I believe what he's doing there is he is pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem. This, this destruction of Jerusalem was God's judgment because God sent His own Son. Remember the parable that Jesus taught? He sends His own Son to go to them, to, to try to win them over, to persuade them. And what do they do? They reject Him and they killed Him. 
And so there has been, leading up to this Olivet Discourse, this, this judgment being pronounced over Jerusalem for its rejection of the Messiah. And in AD 70, that judgment came. The Lord did indeed, when He said, your house is left to you desolate. That means empty, barren. He did indeed leave the temple and never return to it. His spirit would never return to the temple. Instead, his spirit would come and fill his covenant people, right? And his spirit no longer inhabits a physical temple and never will again on earth. We are his temple. So, just as sure as these words concerning Jerusalem would come to pass, so will this next prophecy that Jesus makes certainly come to pass. You can bank your life on it. His word is reliable, trustworthy, true, unchanging. So let's look at this second prophecy that he makes in this verses uh, 23 through 31. Then, if anyone says to you, look here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And that brings us to the second point of this sermon, and that is that Jesus will return and all will see him. But again, Jesus warns that before his return, um, there are are going to be false prophets, false teachers, false Christs being proclaimed, and not to believe it. And, and it seems what he's saying is that as the end draws near, the deception will become even stronger. And um, Lucius talked about this last, word, last week, but it bears repeating that we must dig into God's Word so diligently and know the true Christ so well that the moment that we hear someone teaching or preaching about something, that it's just the slightest bit off that, that we recognize it. That we see that this is, something's not right about this. We've got to dig into the Word and know God's Word in order to protect ourselves from deception. And apparently, signs and wonders will not, uh, are, are not indicators necessarily of someone who is a true teacher of the Word. They're not necessarily the fruit of someone that's reliable. In fact, Jesus says that on the last day, there are going to be many people who stand before Him having had miracle, done miracles, cast out demons, prophesied. And Jesus is going to look at them and say, I've, I never knew you. We don't have a relationship. And then he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And they will be cast into hell. 
People who did signs and wonders. Keep in mind that Judas was sent out to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And so there, it is possible to do things in his name and to have power in his name, but not to know him. And so the deception will become great. But not only deception, but also a pressure. And we see this, right? The pressure to bend, the pressure to agree with the world's ideologies and the world's ways will become, I believe, increasingly stronger. And this is one of the messages of the book of Revelation, that we must stand firm until the end, no matter how hard the pressure gets. No matter how intense it gets, we must refuse to live according to the world's beliefs and customs. It's those who persevere to the end who will be saved. And then we see from this passage also that Jesus is not going to return in a covert way. He, he's not going to come on the scene the way that he did the first time in a small town, born in a, in a stable, right? No, the second return, he's not going to be hiding out in the wilderness or in some inner rooms. He says, when I come and he is going to come, everyone will see and know that he has returned. There will be signs that precede this. He says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, don't over-spiritualize this to where it doesn't make any sense. I believe what he's saying here is there's going to be a solar eclipse or maybe several, lunar eclipses, maybe several, maybe one. The powers of the heaven, uh, the stars will fall from heaven. Maybe, maybe that's meteor showers, right? And just as, remember that a star, one star prophesied his first coming. God, God uses the, the stars to prophesy things. And, you know, not everybody recognized that that was a sign that Jesus was born. Isn't that right? There was just a few. And it may be the same in his return. It may be that these things happen and only a few even pick up on what, what's going on. But he says this, there will be signs. And then he says, just as lightning strikes swiftly and can be seen and heard by all, Jesus will come back quickly and no one will miss it. And these words are certain and sure. And when Jesus returns, he says he's going to, become, he's going to come riding on the clouds in, in power and glory. He's coming back for two reasons. As John Piper says, wrath and rescue. Wrath and rescue. Jesus says the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because they will understand immediately that they have rejected the one true God. And they will know that He has come to bring judgment and that it will be too late on that day to turn to Him in faith. They're going to see Him coming with His angelic army. And... 
They will wish that they had believed. They will wish that they had repented and turned to him. That's why the Bible says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. But when he returns in wrath to crush his enemies under his feet, he is also coming for rescue. For all those who have trusted in him. And it says we will hear a loud trumpet call and in an instant we will be gathered with him in the air. This prophecy is as sure as the sunrise. And so are you ready for this? Are you ready for his return? He's coming. And look at what Jesus says next. Verse 32 through 42. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And that brings us to our third point. That is that he could return any day. He could return any day. So in this passage, Jesus makes it clear that by carefully watching for the signs of this prophecy, it is possible to know that his return is drawing near. It's possible to know that. When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. And then in verse 34, he, he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And Bible scholars have many different opinions uh, about what Jesus means when he says this generation. It could refer to the generation of his disciples. And in that case, he, I believe, would be talking about the prophecies specifically about the destruction of Jerusalem. That generation did not pass away before Jerusalem was destroyed 30 years later. So it could mean that. But I think it more likely he's referring to the generation that sees the signs that he had just talked about before this. The signs of the sun and the moon being darkened and the stars falling from the sky and the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the heavens. So I believe that what he's saying is the generation that sees those signs will not pass away before he returns. When, we, when those signs pop up, then he's coming back very soon. But then Jesus goes on to say that it's impossible to know the day and the hour that he will return. 
that the angels don't know, that the Son doesn't know, that only the Father knows. How that works, I'm not sure. (laughs) For hundreds of years, people have attempted to crack this prophetic code and and narrow it down to a day and when He's going to be coming back. I mean, it's constantly happening, right? I mean, I remember somebody told me last just this past year that Jesus was coming back in September on some specific day. I can't remember what day it was, but I just remember thinking, well, then we can be sure he's not coming back on that day because Jesus said, no one knows. (laughs) No one's going to know. And so when you hear somebody prophesying, it's going to be, it's this day, it's going to be happening on this day, you can just shut that person out because they are they are arrogantly ignoring the words of Jesus the very clear words of Jesus right here you can know when he's getting close but you will not be able to predict the day and it's going to be as in the days of Noah you know I was thinking about this church we need a generation of Noah's. You think about Noah. In Noah's day, scholars believe the earth was, could have been as populated as it is today because of the length of time that people lived and how many kids they had and the amount of time that had passed between Adam and Noah. This was a very populated earth at this time. And I say that to say, think about the fact that there was one man walking around that Jesus approved of, that the Lord approved of. One person that God looked at and said, he's righteous in this generation. He walks with me. One person that God said, you know, I can entrust that guy. I can tell that guy to build a boat the size of a cruise ship in his backyard, even though he's never seen it rain, and he'll do it. One guy that God said, you know, he can bear the reproach of the rest of the world. He can, he can for a hundred years, he can work on building this thing and take all the scorn and all the rejection from the world because he believes me and he loves me and he walks with me. And I'm going to wipe out the rest of the earth, but I'll save this one guy and his family because of him. And so it will be in the days of Noah. I think that in the last days, there will be so many people walking around calling themselves Christians who are false, who are not willing to bear the reproach of Christ, who are not willing to look different and be seen as odd and crazy maybe by the rest of the world if that's what it takes to obey what their Lord says to do. I think we need a generation of Noahs. Jesus, remembering what it was like when he flooded the earth, says it will be just like in those days. He says people were going out to restaurants, 
drinking their favorite beers, planning weddings, planting gardens, remodeling their kitchens in the middle of big projects at work, about to have babies, in the middle of getting their degrees. I mean, the point that Jesus is making is life was going on as normal. (laughs) You know, it wasn't like the apocalyptic movies. They were just living their lives not listening to the one righteous man preaching the truth with his life. And then quietly, righteous Noah walks into the ark. And then it's over. The door shuts. And Jesus says, the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And two men will be in the field, one taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. What's he saying? The ones that will be called to Christ are the ones who are awake, eagerly awaiting his return, not the ones who are living for this world. And in many ways, their lives will look the same. They'll be going to the same job. They'll be living on the same street. One will be taken like that, and the other left. This is referring to the rapture. And there are different views, according to Bible scholars, about how the rapture happens or exactly when it happens. Some believe the church will be raptured out of the the world and then there will be seven years of tribulation. I don't personally believe that. I I believe the the view that we're actually going to be raptured as He's returning to bring judgment. That's, That's the way that I understand the Scriptures and there are some fantastic Bible teachers that don't see it that way. Um, but the way I understand it is the church is going to be caught up. Raptured means caught up. Caught up together with him in the air as he is returning to bring judgment. I, I think we're going to get right there behind all the angels and join him in our glorified state. That's what I think. Whatever the case... There's going to come a day when you're caught up. If you're still here when He returns, you're, you'll be caught up together with Him in the air. And Jesus tells us that we're to live as though this might happen any day so that we might not be found spiritually sleeping. So let me ask you this. As I close, let's just say that today on your drive home from here, you're driving down the road and you look up and you see the sky split open and you hear a trumpet blast. And you see Jesus riding on the clouds in power and glory. And I want to ask you this, what will be the first thing through your head? Is it going to be regret or fear? Are you going to think about some unrepentant sin that you never dealt with? Are you going to to be thinking about how you've been lukewarm for the last months or years? How 
how you hadn't obeyed him in the things that he told you to do? Or are you going to lift your head? Because you know your rescue is coming. If you've never turned from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today so that you can be ready. Because listen, friend, even if He doesn't return in our lifetime, in your lifetime, every single one of us will stand before this King. Every one of us. And in that moment, when we stand before Him, it will not matter how frequently you attended church or how often you read your Bible or how well you said your prayers or all the good deeds that you did. Nothing will allow you to stand before a holy God except one thing, and that is undeserved grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only thing that will allow you to be able to stand before a holy God. His grace applied to you because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And so, if you've never turned from your sins, if you've never said, I'm done with doing life my way, I'm done with trying on my own terms, with my own strength to be a good and moral person, I'm done. And if you've never done that and turned away from those sins and turned to Jesus to trust Him completely, to obey Him, whatever He says, then I invite you to do that today. And if you do that today, truly, the Bible says you'll be saved. You are saved by grace through faith, not of your own works. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then I want to encourage you to live today as though He were coming back today. So that when He returns, you will not shrink back but you can lift your head and know that your rescue is coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh Lord, with all of the church, we say, Send him. Send your son back. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Oh, Lord, we long for your return. We look forward to your return, to being with you forever, to, being, to, be, to seeing you face to face and becoming just like you. Oh, Lord, we look forward to that day. And Lord, in the between, in the meantime, in these last days, may we be found faithful. Would you keep us, Lord Jesus? Would you keep us? Lead us, Lord Jesus. Give us the strength that we need to persevere to the end. Give us Give us the grace that we need to keep on believing, not to give in to the deceptions, not to give in to the pressures of this world, not to give in to fear and alarm and anxiety, 
but to trust you. Your words are sure. The rock upon which we stand. The rock upon which we build our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are God. You are King. You are coming back. You are in control and we can trust you. We praise you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.